Well, imagine if... Brothers and sisters of Corinth, it's time for this nonsense to stop. In Christ Jesus, we've been set free. We've been liberated. We are spiritual people. Everything is permissible for us. And yet there are still some among us who fail to grasp our freedom. There are still some among us who haven't progressed into the spirituality that we enjoy. Why this quarrelling about food sacrificed to idols? Idols are nothing. There is no God but one. The Apostle Paul, when he was among us, he taught us these things. It's true, temples litter our city here in Corinth. It's true, we have many temples to pray from, to many gods. It's true, we have many shrines to many emperors and many heroes. And many of us have spent a lifetime worshipping in those same temples and shrines. But listen to my knowledge. Listen to what I know. Such gods, they're not gods at all. And sacrifices to such gods mean nothing. And so you see, we have nothing to fear from food that is sacrificed to a god that is no god at all. Nothing to fear at all. And yet still some of you do not eat. The meat sold in the marketplace, yes, it comes from the temple. Yes, it's been offered to a false god in the temple. But what of it? We are free to eat of it. To not eat of it is to be weak. To not eat of it it is to be enslaved and unspiritual. And you see, when we are invited to the rooms around the temple, it is right to eat. Everything is permissible for us. We are free. We are spiritual. Remember what we say, food for the stomach and the stomach for food. Indeed, I am so free, I am so spiritual, that I have nothing to fear even from participating in the sacrifices themselves in the temple. Brothers and sisters of Corinth, move on from your weakness Move on from your ignorance. Embrace our wisdom. Embrace our spirituality. Embrace our freedom. Embrace our knowledge. We've written to the Apostle Paul himself of these things. And we feel sure that when he replies, he will endorse everything that we say to you. Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be holy, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Grace and peace to you from God our rule, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now about food sacrificed to idols, we know that we all possess knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. The man who thinks he knows something does not yet know as he ought to know. But the man who loves God is known by God.
So then, about eating food sacrificed to idols, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came, for whom we live. And there is but one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. But not everyone knows this. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat such food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to an idol. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat, no better if we do. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your freedom does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone with a weak conscience sees you, who have this knowledge, eating in an idol's temple, won't he be, won't he be emboldened to eat what has been sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother, for whom Christ died, is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against your brothers in this way and wound the, their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause him to fall. Well, brothers and sisters of Evening Church in Dubbo, tonight we're thinking about knowledge. Knowledge. If you think about it, knowledge is a very powerful thing, isn't it? To know things opens up all sorts of possibilities. To know how a car works opens up the possibilities of being able to fix it when it breaks or make it work even better. Personally, I am in awe of that sort of knowledge. To know about money management and accounting and those sorts of things allows you to do things with money that others who don't know those things can't do. All of that, of course, is why our society honours knowledge. Education is so important in our society because to gain knowledge is to gain power, is to gain freedom, and so we pursue knowledge. And in Christian circles, it's no different, really. We defer to knowledge, Christian knowledge. There is status attached to knowing things, to knowing Christian things, things of the Bible. We respect and we even envy people who know lots, who know more about the Bible than we do. You know, the ones who can uh, pass on Bible quotes with authority, the ones always willing to pass on that relevant doctrine to us. We're impressed by that. But is that right? Is that how it should be? What should be the way of knowledge within us here in Evening Church? They're the questions I want us to spend a little bit of time thinking about together from 1 Corinthians chapter 8. So if you haven't got your Bible open yet, 1 Corinthians 8 will be a great place for you to be aiming at. There's an outline of the talk on the inside of the bulletin. 
And we've already reached point three. That was painless, wasn't it? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that with our Bibles open, we have nothing less than your true and living word. And so, Father, we pray that as we read this part of your word tonight together, that you'd help us to understand it and to obey it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, with 1 Corinthians 8 open in front of you, it's probably worth explaining why we're starting a new teaching series in the middle of a book. You'd normally start at the very beginning because that's always a very good place to start, so they say. And we did last year. Um, For a large part of 2005, we worked our way through 1 Corinthians chapters 1 to 7 in evening church. And it's the goal, God willing, to finish the letter this year. We'll see how we go with that. If you wanted to catch up on those earlier talks, uh, you can find them on our webpage or in the cassette collection, which is in the uh, family room down the back. But because we are jumping in at 1 Corinthians chapter 8, it's worth, I think, quickly getting our bearings before we too far get into the actual chapter. So here's some quick bearings. The letter that we're looking at is a letter of the Apostle Paul to the Church of God in Corinth, the city of Corinth, the Greek city of Corinth, a church that by any measure has got its fair share of issues and problems. doesn't take much reading of the letter to discover that. In very broad terms, though, it's a church that is too much influenced by the culture of its day, a culture that honoured achievement and status, and so a church that was caught up in boasting. And within the church, there was much quarrelling and rivalry. And even the Apostle Paul, who planted the church, Even the Apostle Paul's authority was being challenged and undermined. Immorality was going on within the church unchecked. All in all, a bit of a mess really. And so in response, the Apostle writes to the Corinthian Christians and he reminds them of what he calls the message of the cross, the message of the gospel, the message of Christ crucified. And he helps them to see how the message of the cross or to shape all of our thinking and all of our doing as Christian people. And, and by chapter 8, we've reached the bit of the letter where Paul is actually responding to a letter that has been written to him by at least some in the Corinthian church. Okay, he's writing a response to a letter that's been written to him. The first matter that they raised with Paul concerned marriage and sex, or at least that's the first issue that he deals with. And we we saw that, that Paul addresses that in chapter 7. You can see that in chapter 7 for yourself. And then in chapter 8, our passage tonight, he moves on to his next topic, his next answer. So chapter 8, verse 1. Now, about food sacrificed to idols. Now you might might be thinking, well, that doesn't seem quite as interesting as marriage and sex. And maybe that's why Paul answered that one first. Well... Maybe, but I I don't think Paul considers the question of food sacrifice to idols uninteresting or unimportant at all. In fact, his answer goes all the way to chapter 11 and verse 1. He spends a long time on the topic of food sacrifice to idols. We're going to take three Sundays to work through his answer. Food sacrifice to idols. What's the big deal? Well, let me suggest it would have been a very big deal in first century Corinth. Because there were heaps of temples and shrines in Corinth. 
And there would have been sacrifices taking place all the time all over the place in Corinth. And the animals that were sacrificed were eaten around the temples in courtyards and small dining rooms, which functioned in their community almost like a function room, like you might uh, hire the savannah room at the zoo or something like that. There was function rooms around the temples in which you ate the food sacrificed to idols. But also the food sacrificed to idols was sold in the markets, and so people bought that meat to eat at home. So it was certainly a current issue for the Corinthian church. And it's not hard to think of places today in the world, is it, where that sort of issue would be a very current one for Christians today. If you're a Christian in Indonesia or India or lots of parts of Africa, you would read this and think that's exactly our issue. But that might still leave us to wonder tonight, well, okay, we're not in those places. We're in Dubbo in the 21st century. So how relevant is it to us tonight? Well, that's a fair question. But what we need to notice straight up is that whether a Christian could eat food that had been sacrificed to idols was really only the surface issue. It was only the surface issue. The deeper issue for the Corinthians was knowledge. Those who were eating and encouraging others to eat, they defended their position on the basis of their knowledge. And so you can see that in the second sentence of chapter 8, of verse 1 of chapter 8. Let me read it. We know that we all possess knowledge, Paul writes. But that seems to be Paul quoting from the original Corinthian letter. Paul does lots of quoting in 1 Corinthians, lots of quoting of what they have written to him. And we all possess knowledge seems to be something that they have written and Paul is quoting back to them. Because the deeper issue for them was knowledge. And that's going to come up a few times in the letters we keep moving our way through. So for the Corinthians themselves, food sacrifice to idols was the surface issue. But for them, the deeper issue was knowledge. But for the Apostle Paul, there was even a deeper, more significant issue that he wants to address. Deeper than food sacrifice to idols, deeper than knowledge. And you can see Paul take the Corinthians to that deeper level in just the third sentence of our passage. So let me read it again from chapter 8 and verse 1. See if you can spot it. Now about food sacrificed to idols, we know that we all possess knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. The man who thinks he knows something does not yet know as he ought to know. But the man who loves God is known by God. What's the deep issue according to the apostle? Love. Love. Not love. Love. Okay? Knowledge is important, but it's not enough. The Corinthians, you see, Paul says, they were wrong to boast of their knowledge. In fact, knowledge on, their own, on its own is dangerous. Knowledge on its own puffs up, Paul says. And what they needed was love, because love builds up. Nothing wrong with knowledge, provided it is governed by love. And of course, the apostle would want the same for us here in Evening Church. We may not have direct contact with food offered to idols, but the correction that the apostle offers the Corinthians concerning knowledge and love, well, we certainly need to hear that. Well, we've identified the real issue. It's interesting then to see how the apostle proceeds with it. And you can see it on your outline. He first deals with what it is that they know, 
And then he helps them to think through how such knowledge should be governed by love. So point four on your outline and verse four of chapter eight. Let me read. So then, about eating food sacrificed to idols, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world and that there is no God but one. See, again, Paul writes there, we know. And again, it seems more than likely that Paul is quoting from their letter again, the letter to Paul of those defending their eating of food sacrificed to idols. It's not wrong, Paul. We possess knowledge. We know that an idol is nothing. We know that there is no God but one. And Paul agrees with them. He agrees with what they know. And he goes on to affirm it very strongly. You're right, he says. There is no God but one. Verse 5. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. I reckon those two verses, verses 5 and 6, are pretty amazing, really. Amazing because they're such a grand affirmation that there is only one true and living God. And amazing that in a passage in which Paul is so much on the front foot about love, that he could say so strongly such politically incorrect things, such intolerant things, such things that many people today would describe as totally unloving. Did you notice that? In a couple of sentences, the apostle dismisses every other religious belief system known to man. Every other God, Hinduism, Buddhism, Islam, Judaism, uh, Aboriginal dreaming, and any and every other combination anyone might come up with, Paul dismisses them all as false rivals because there is but one God, one God, the Christian God. It's very important, brothers and sisters, that in seeking to be loving, we never sacrifice what is true. Let's not confuse loving with lying. Love without truth is no love at all. Truth and love always go together. Love is not somehow separate from knowledge. Love is not just an emotion that's disconnected from our brain. Love affirms the truth. So please don't succumb to the pressure of our world, and it is strong pressure. Don't succumb to the pressure of our world that somehow it's unloving to speak out the truth that there is, there is but one God and no others. And notice how the apostle goes on to describe this one God. See there in verse 6 he says, he calls him the Father, which is a great description. It's a lovely title. Because you see, immediately Paul says of this one, one God, he is not distant, he's not unmoved, he's not untouched. He's personal. He's relational. He is the God who is love. He is the Father. The Father of Christ Jesus. And the Father of all those who come to him through Christ Jesus. He is the one, Paul says, from whom all things came. He is the creator, the source of all things. The one true God, he is not part of creation. He's not subject to creation. He's the creator. And you see, he stands over and apart 
from the entire universe as its loving maker, its loving ruler. And he is the one, Paul writes there in verse 6, he is the one for whom we live. The one for whom we live. Our very existence is for him and for his purposes. There is but one true God, Paul says, the Father. And there is but one true Lord, Jesus Christ. Important to note, uh, too, that in affirming so strongly that over and against the so-called many gods, there is but one true God, Paul has no problem in distinguishing between the Father and the Son. One true God, Father and Son. See, in creating all things, God the Father created them through his Son, the Lord Jesus. And through Jesus and through his death and resurrection, we have been brought back to the Father so that we might live. And so Paul says we live for the Father through his Son. One true God, Father and Son. And if you're wondering about the Holy Holy Spirit, he's already talked about him in 1 Corinthians 3. We live for the Father through his Son, Paul says. Now some of the Corinthians, they defended their eating of food sacrificed to idols with their knowledge. Their knowledge that an idol is nothing at all in the world. Their knowledge that there is no God but one. And Paul affirms their knowledge. He says, yes, what you know is true. But he cannot affirm, he cannot affirm the way they are exercising their knowledge. In fact, their behaviour is not consistent with their knowledge. In fact, in the words of verse 2, they do not yet know as they ought to know, for they lack love. Rather than using their knowledge to build up their brothers and sisters, they are puffed up with their knowledge and they are in danger of destroying their brothers and sisters. And it's to that danger that Paul turns next. Point five, verse seven. Let me read. But not everyone knows this. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat such food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to an idol. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. Immediately now, Paul introduces us to another section of the Corinthian church. Those, he says, who are still coming to terms, still coming to terms with the reality that idols are nothing. Those who are still, he says, accustomed to idols. And I would guess that they are those who have not long been rescued from idolatry. They've not long been Christian. And idol worship, you, still, you see, would still have been very potent to them. The symbolism and the rituals, that may well have been ingrained in them from youth. And Paul refers to them at the end of the verse there, verse 7, as having a weak conscience. Or later in verse 11, as a weak brother or sister. Interesting to speculate as to why Paul calls them weak. I think we automatically uh, read it as a criticism because we say, oh, that's weak. And what we mean is that's slack or you're weak, meaning you're hopeless. Okay. Although notice that the the, uh, training course that I'm running is called, uh, AB's called it bodybuilding. (laughs) That's by the by. Anyway, Paul says uh, they're weak, but it's not a put down. We think of it as a put down, but, and I think we automatically read it as a criticism, But you know what? It was more than likely a criticism within the Corinthian church. 
More than likely that those who knew about idols would have proclaimed themselves as the strong ones and the others as weak. But does Paul mean it as a criticism as well? Well, I don't think so. I don't think so. In fact, what he's written earlier in the letter makes it clear that he doesn't think of weak as a criticism. You can look it up later, but back in chapter 2 and verse 2, chapter 2, verse 2, Paul boasts of his own weakness. He boasts back there in chapter 2 that when he first visited Corinth, he came in weakness, is what he says. He wasn't impressive, in other words. He wasn't a clever speaker. There was no sort of pomp and ceremony about him. He was weak in the eyes of the Corinthians. But not only that, Paul also says in the earlier chapters that the weak people of the world are exactly the ones that God chooses for his family. And so back in chapter 1 and verse 27, chapter 1 and verse 27, Paul writes this, God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. See, weak is not a criticism in Paul's eyes. Paul is, 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 not, is far more critical of the so-called strong. He may well be just using Corinthian labels when he calls them weak, but they are weak, according to Paul, in that they are vulnerable. That's his point here. They are weak in that they are vulnerable. You see, as he says in, the, in, the, in verse uh, 7, when they eat such food sacrificed to idols, it's not merely food to them. In fact, when they eat it, they eat it as if they are once more taking part in the very same idolatry that they've been saved from. And so, Paul says, such eating defiles them. It actually goes against their new relationship with Christ. Have a look at verse 10 with me. Verse 10. For if anyone with a weak conscience sees you who have this knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't he be emboldened to eat what has been sacrificed to idols? And so this weak brother for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. Paul's not holding back there, is he? This is serious. These new brothers and sisters are very vulnerable. And those who are the so-called strong ones, those who boast of their knowledge, they need to understand that. There's actually a terrible irony in the Apostle's words there in verses 10 and 11. It's an irony having to do with building up and pulling down. It's more than likely that the so-called strong ones of the Corinthian church were wanting the so-called weak ones to join them in eating food sacrificed to idols so as to build them up, to face their fear, so to speak, confront their ignorance. But Paul says there in verse 10, the only encouragement they'll be given... The only building up they will receive will in fact lead to their destruction. It will only pull them down. It will lead them away from Christ. Verse 12, when you sin against your brothers in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. What a tragedy. What a terrible thing when Christians in pride and arrogance act against their brothers and sisters. And notice how Paul describes these so-called weaker brothers in verse 11. Did you see it? He calls them the one for whom Christ died. Christ died for this one, Paul says. You may call them weak, but Christ died for them. And they are vulnerable. Christ died for them. And so the apostle warns these Corinthians, boasting in their knowledge and their freedom, that to sin against a weaker brother, a vulnerable brother, is to sin against Christ. 
Instead, they should imitate the Apostle Paul, who himself imitates Christ. Point six, verse 13. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause him to fall. That, in a nutshell, is the way of knowledge. Knowledge, that is, shaped by love. Because, you see, love, remember, builds up. Love always looks to the good, to the benefit of the other. And notice, though, that it costs, doesn't it? Costs. Paul wanted the Corinthians to refrain from doing what they knew they were free to do. He wanted them to stop doing what they were free to do in order to love their brothers and sisters. Verse 8, he says, verse 8, food doesn't commend us to God. Whether we eat or don't eat, it doesn't matter. Verse 4, an idol has no real existence. Whether or not food has been offered to idols, it doesn't matter. But what does matter is love. What does matter is building up my brother or sister and not causing them to stumble. And if loving a brother or a sister means giving up something that I am free to enjoy, then I will give it up. That is the right way to exercise my knowledge, Paul says. For that's the way of love. And love, of course, is the way of Christ. Christ who died for us in our weakness and sin. Christ who put aside all that was rightfully his in order to be a loving servant. Christ who pursued what was best for us at incredible cost to himself. His death. Love builds up. And this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. We've read that in 1 John in our small groups, haven't we? This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. That's the way of Christ. That's the way of love. And that, you see, is the right way to use my knowledge. And that's why the apostle in verse 13 here in chapter 8, that's why he says, look, if what I eat causes my brother to fall into sin, then even though I know that food is really nothing, even though I know that, I will never eat meat again. For how I act on what I know must always be shaped by love. For I belong to Christ. So it was for the Apostle Paul. So it ought to have been for the Corinthian Christians. And so it's got to be for us here in Evening Church as well. We must pursue the way of love. And love always builds up. Brothers and sisters, can we please be very wary of the capacity of knowledge to puff us up, to make us arrogant and proud and boastful? We've got to, de- to, to determine that we will only act on our knowledge in love for the other person. What might that look like for us? Well, I thought I might take the example of our small group Bible studies during the week just as an example to help us flesh it out a bit. Please recognise, won't you, the opportunity that your small group gives you to be puffed up with your knowledge, to proudly parade your knowledge in front of the other people in your small group. Now, let's be clear. 
Your knowledge of the Bible, your knowledge of God is very important to the other people in the group. God has given you that knowledge. It is a good thing. But please make sure that you are more concerned with loving the other people in your group than you are at simply sharing what you know. Can you hear the difference in that? Yes. Yes. Hear what I'm saying? So, for example, when uh, you know we have our discussion times, hopefully we have discussion times in our small group where people are sharing things, and inevitably, hopefully, there'll come that time when someone in discussion time will say something that you know to be wrong. Let me tell you that what you must do next must be determined by love. Love for that person must determine whether you correct them or how you correct them because your concern, you see, is to build that person up. That's the way of Christ. That's the way of love. And can I say that every error spoken in our small group doesn't need to be corrected. There are times, you know, like when a cricketer um, facing a delivery, you would simply lift your bat and let the ball go through to the keeper. You just let it slide out of love for that brother or sister rather than taking a few big steps down the pitch and slogging it mercilessly into the uh, thunderous applause of the crowd thinking, man, what a champion of truth. Knowledge puffs up. Knowledge puffs up. And we must be very wary of our vanity, very wary of using our knowledge to simply look good or to impress the other people in our group. You think that's not you? Right. It's me. It's all of us. But of course, you know, out of love, you may correct that person. I'm not saying that error always goes unchecked. That would be ridiculous. In love, we need to correct each other. We need even to rebuke each other. We need each other to do that. But always in love. And I'm not saying the last thing I would want for us to walk away from this passage thinking, well, boy, I'm not going to speak in Bible study this week. (laughs) I'm just going to stay silent. There's the safe path. Can I say, that's not driven by love either. That's driven by the same selfishness. We've just got to be driven by love. We've got to, the, what we say, and when we say it, we need to act on love, not to be puffed up, but to love the other people in our group. Now, there's an example in a small group. You've got to do the hard work of thinking beyond that. Over supper time tonight, or uh, um, just in meeting people, or just in chatting with people, how is it that what I know should be shaped by love within, within our evening church family? And can I say, look, I think from our passage, we've got to especially be careful with new believers, believers who are vulnerable and frail. A new believer, and one of the great things about Evening Church is we have lots of new believers. And can I say that a new believer doesn't have to have everything right from the moment they believe. That's a great relief if you're a new believer, isn't it? If you're an old believer, you don't have to have everything right. But new believers especially have to be carefully and lovingly built up, kept in the faith, nurtured, not discouraged by constant correction. Remember a number of years ago now we had a small group in which uh, a girl started coming along who had been uh, saved out of a Catholic sort of upbringing and she brought along her Bible with the picture of the photograph of the Pope 
in the front and had all sorts of extra books that Catholic Bibles sometimes have. And uh, the group was wonderful. At, we, never, we never once said, well, what would you have a picture of the Pope for in your Bible? We never said that. Um, we encouraged her. And uh, she's pushed on in the faith. I think we got that right. Brothers and sisters, knowledge is good. It's necessary. We've got to pursue it. We should grow in it. The Lord God would want that for us. But never in isolation from love. Never at the expense of our brothers and sisters. Here in Evening Church, you see, we don't want people, we don't want to be people who know the truth. We want to be people who know the truth and exercise it lovingly. We want to be people who know the truth and share it for the good of the other. So that whenever we gather here on Sunday nights and over supper and here just sitting on our seats together, in our small groups during the week, in our smaller encouragement groups, just bumping into each other and sort of having time together, our goal will be to share what we know so as to help each other follow Jesus. In that way, you see, we'll reflect the love of Christ for us and in us. Our take-home slogan for tonight, if you want to write something on your fridge, knowledge puffs up, love builds up. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus who willingly died for us to bring us back to you. Even though we were weak and frail and disobedient, we thank you for his love for us. Thank you for the way that love determined everything that Jesus did and does. Father, we thank you that you yourself are love. And we thank you, Father, that we benefit every moment of every day from your love. And so, Father, we want to pray that you would help us to pursue the most excellent way, the way of love. And tonight, Father, you've especially drawn our attention to the danger of knowledge. And so, Father, we pray for your help in that. Father, help us to uh, beware the danger of knowledge puffing us up. Instead, Father, help us to be just terrific at looking to build each other up. Help us to flesh that out, Father, to know how that will look in all the various interactions and relationships we're involved with. And perhaps, Father, when that time comes when we're about to say something and really we're just saying it to look good, could you remind us then, Father, of this truth? Help us to stay silent. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, how wonderful that the Lord God grants us his spirit, the spirit of Jesus himself, to dwell within us and change us and even give us the mind of Christ. So let's uh, encourage each other by singing this final song and then I hope that we can stay for uh, supper, which is going to be